I, uh, of course, am Joe Collins, and we are following Jesus through the Bible. And uh, it is great to be here with everyone today. Make sure I got everything turned on here. Okay, we're good. Um, I want to just, before I get started, uh, I wanted to say that uh, Anthony and Karina are dear friends. We love them. Uh, he served as an intern for us for six months, did a great job. Uh, and the whole time they had to commute out here, um, and we uh, are just super appreciative of you guys and everything you've done. You mean, mean the world to us. We love you to death. We hate to see you go. Uh, but they ended the internship program. Anthony went on to pursue his, is pursuing his uh, graphic uh, design career, I guess, or his art career in his graphic novel. And Karina works uh, for a bank. So they're, they're doing fine. They're going to go back to the Valley Church and plug back in there where they came from. But one of the bummers was is that we were hoping and praying that God would open up a door for them here and see me, meaning that they could find a place to live. And we've not been able to do that. Uh, rents are very high. They have very good rent where they are. And so this, the idea of trying to commute was just more than, than would have been good for them. But I will say this. There is one tiny bit of ray of hope. If anybody finds a real good apartment deal or a place that they could live... If you find it in this week, we might still be able to rescue them and keep them here. So I'm putting an appeal out for anybody that might have an idea because they were open to it. It just doesn't look like it's going to work. So let's just put one last ninth inning, two outs, batter, last batter up prayer out there to God, and maybe a door will open. So if anybody knows of a situation, uh, don't be afraid to approach them with it. Amen? All right. So uh, as I said before, we're following Jesus through the Gospel of Mark, and uh, I wanted to tell a story. There was this little boy, and he was at his grandparents' house, and he was on the porch, and he was talking to his grandfather. And uh, he said, Grandpa, do you know how to make animal sounds? And the grandfather said, well, yes, I do. What sort of animal would you like me to imitate? And the little boy said, a toad. So the grandfather said, okay, and he put his hands over his mouth, and he went, croak, croak. And the little boy jumped up and down. He was so excited. Yippee, Grandpa, yippee. Now we get to go to Miami. And he, and, and he was hopping up and down. The grandfather was like, wait a second, son. What, what did you say? He said, yippee, we get to go to Miami. And the grandfather said, what do you mean we get to go to Miami? And he said, well, Grandma told me that after you croak, we're going to move to Miami. <laughs> Let's pray before we read John chapter 6. Heavenly Father, thank you for being together. Thanks for this time that we have, and I pray for your spirit to be with us this morning. Encourage us, inspire us, draw us near to you through your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we've been doing all series long, we have our map of Palestine on the screen, and, and uh, we have a little star there by Nazareth because that's where Jesus is at this point. In the narrative that Mark is giving us, Mark chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 14. It says here, King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said he's Elijah, and still others claim he's a prophet, like one of the prophets long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, he said, he, uh, when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. As I said before, Jesus and the disciples are in Nazareth. 
uh, they came back home for the second time to a less than, less than warm reception. Afterwards, Jesus sent the disciples out, you, remember, you may remember from last week, two by two with their clothes on to go to the neighboring towns and villages and to spread the message of Jesus Christ. Apparently, Jesus didn't go. He stayed in Nazareth, maybe to spend time with the family. Who knows? But while he was there, he got some news about John the Baptist, his cousin and dear friend. And so at this point in the narrative of Mark, we're going to actually take a little detour, and Mark is going to sort of conclude the story of John the Baptist. This is the only narrative that doesn't involve Jesus in the gospel. And that tells us something about the guy John the Baptist was. If you, if you remember, several weeks back, Mark chapter 1, when we were still there, Jesus had left Nazareth, and he went down to see John the Baptist. And he spent several months down there with John. Again, they were cousins. John was, the, was the, the E.F. Hutton of Israel at the time. When he spoke, people listened. He had an entire movement that was started because of his preaching there uh, down uh, near the, the, the Dead Sea uh, at the Jordan River, an area called Perea. And while Jesus was there, and while John was doing his ministry, and thousands and thousands of people were coming out to hear John and be baptized by John, uh, John got arrested. King Herod had him arrested. And that was the shot heard around the world. That was the moment that, that was the, the starting point of Jesus' ministry. It was after that that Jesus went into Capernaum, and then he went home for a short time. He taught a message in his hometown announcing that he was the Messiah. Then he went back to Capernaum, and he began his public ministry. And so for the past two years, Jesus has been going from town to village and town to village with his disciples, teaching and training and preaching repentance and, and uh, uh, casting out demons and performing miracles. And this whole time, about two years, John had been in prison. Now, Mark wants to tell us the story of what happened to John. We know that it ends bad for John. He's beheaded by Herod. And uh, we find this out about two years or so into the ministry of Jesus. And Jesus' name had become so well known that his ministry had become so widespread that he was, he was recognized or knew of all over that whole map area. Pretty much the entire uh, 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 land of Palestine, Jesus had become well known. Even to the ears of Herod, the king of the area, had heard of Jesus. And so one day Herod is having a conversation with advisors and they're trying to figure out who's this Jesus guy. And Jesus being so powerful and so uh, impressive, these are the kind of things that people were saying about him. Well, some think he's Elijah. That was a, 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 a Elijah was a prophet that would come to announce the coming of the Messiah who lived many years before this. And, and some people believe he was Elijah back from the dead. Other people think he was just, thought he was just another prophet but Herod said, no, 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 this is John the Baptist back from the dead. He's back to get me. Now I'm going to ask you a question. We're going to do a little uh, audience participation like we did last week and uh, to keep you guys engaged and to keep, keep our, our focus on, on the message today. So I have a question for you. Some of you may know the story, and that's totally okay. Some of you may not. That's okay. We're going to explain the whole story. But, but I want to ask this question. I want you to be thinking about it. What was the reason you think that Herod came to this conclusion? What was, what was Herod's reasoning? I'm just wondering if you ever thought that. 
He had guilt. What else? Any other thoughts? Why would Herod come to this conclusion? Yes. He was afraid. Okay. Any other thoughts? Yes, sir. Uh huh. Yeah. So, so the, the belief in the possibility of someone coming back from the dead wasn't far fetched. I think all those things are valid. And 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 the one that really jumps out at me is that Herod had a conscience. He clearly felt bad about what he ended up doing to John. So much so that when he heard about Jesus, he started feeling guilty. Oh, this is John coming back to get me. I mean, how many times have you and I sinned or done something we know is wrong? And then when something bad happens the next day, we go, oh, that's it. God's out to get me. You know, we, we get that sense. Well, Herod had a conscience. Now, I want to stop for a second because I want to talk about Herod. His name was Herod Antipas. He was the son of Herod the Great. And let me just say this. I spent a long time yesterday reading about the story of Herod the Great and his family, and these were not good people. They were not God-fearing people. They were very, very corrupt. Herod Antipas was the son of Herod the Great, one of many. Herod the Great had some of his sons executed, by the way. Some of the sons had each other executed, by the way. Not the best, most functional family in the world. He had become king, technically not a king. He was really the governor of the area of Galilee and Perea, those two provinces. And he was installed as governor by the Roman uh, uh, emperor because they controlled the land at the time. So he technically wasn't a king, although they referred to him as a king in the Gospels. And maybe... Maybe it was a little sarcastic. Oh, he's the king? Really, he was a governor, and he had the power and authority of Rome behind him, but he was, answer he was answerable to Rome. He had got to this point through a lot of intrigue, through a lot of political, uh, 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 just he was a great politician. He knew how to navigate that stuff. And he was relatively secure and relatively powerful for most of his reign there in these two areas. He, uh, he was married to a woman named Herodias, who happened to be his brother's wife. So he had an affair. His brother hadn't died. So he had an affair with his brother's wife and stole her. Oh, and by the way, Herodias was also his niece. Like I said, not the, not the most functional family. These were not the kind of people... That, that had a lot of conscience, we would think had a lot of conscience about them and their behavior, murdering, political intrigue, incest. I mean, all this stuff is going on in the family, yet Herod had a guilty conscience over what he had done to John. You know, even sinners have a conscience. Even the worst of us feel bad at times over things we did or maybe didn't do or should have done, what have you. But here's the point that I want to drive home, and this is an important point. It's a theme that's going to come up in the message today again and again, and I want you to be prepared for it because it's a bit of a challenging point. And here's the point. The only way 
to get through to a sinner is to preach repentance. That's where it starts. You can't get to grace, which is what we all want to get to. We all want to enjoy the grace of God unless you go through repentance. One comes before the other. And John the Baptist was a preacher of repentance. When people came to him, he called them vipers and snakes. When, when those, and those were the religious, those were the ministers that came to him. When other people came to him, he told them not to extort people, not to abuse each other, not to you know, c- uh, commit crimes against each other. I mean, John preached repentance. That was his message. His baptism was a baptism of repentance. The only way he had any kind of impact on Herod, Antipas, this, this hard-hearted, gross guy that came from a gross family was through preaching repentance to him. He, he got in, into his conscience. He poked at him and got in there. To the point that after he was put to death, Herod was still fearful of John the Baptist. I want to make a second point here. Jesus picked up where John left off. Jesus was a preacher of repentance. Very beginning of the Gospel of Mark, it says, Jesus said, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. We tend to think of Jesus as the preacher of grace, but I got to tell you, in the first six chapters of the Gospel of Mark, there is no message of grace by Jesus. It's all about repentance. He was a preacher of repentance. There's a great story about Jesus in one of the other Gospels of, of a woman who had been caught in adultery brought to him. And they put her at his feet and they said, shouldn't she be stoned? I mean, that's what the law says. And he said, he who is without sin cast the first stone. And immediately everybody realized they were all sinners too. And they could have been just as guilty and, and, and deserved stoning too. So they left the woman alone. And we look at that and we go, oh, Jesus is so filled with grace. And he was. He practiced grace. But he said to the woman, repent and leave your life of sin. His message to the crowd was, he who is without sin, throw the first stone. In other words, repent of your sin before you judge someone else. Jesus was a preacher of repentance. He challenged people. He confronted them. He called them out of their sin. He practiced grace. But he preached repentance. If we're going to be anything like John, if we're going to become any, anything like, like Jesus, if we, as Simi Church, if we're going to make any impact on the world or our, just little tiny Simi Valley, we've got to be the kind of people who are willing to confront sin, who are willing to call people out of their life of sin. We can't be afraid of doing that. We can't be defensive about doing that. We can't be insecure about doing that. We've got to be willing to tell people like it is. And we got to practice grace. Verse 17. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put into prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. 
For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Repent, Herod. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled. Yet he liked to listen to him. So John the Baptist got arrested by Herod for, con uh, for confronting him over his unlawful marriage, his immoral marriage to his wife, his brother's wife, who happened to also be his niece. And, you know, that was a pretty gutsy thing for John the Baptist to do. It, it, it took a lot of courage. And if any of us are going to be able to be preachers of repentance, the truth is it takes courage. It's the hardest thing. It's one of the hardest things to do. As, as a Christian, is to call someone out of their sin or to challenge them on their sin. It's so hard. It's hard for a multitude of reasons. One, it's awkward, it's intense, you know, you don't know how they're going to react, all that. But also, I'm a sinner too, and so are you. So then there's always a bit of hypocrisy in the process, right? That's why we practice grace. But truth is truth. God's word is God's word, and we're obligated. we got to get out there and tell people the truth. We can't hide from it. We can't, we can't withdraw. we we got to have courage. Sometimes it's our own friends. Sometimes it's our kids. Sometimes it's our parents. It takes courage. Sometimes, and who knows, but maybe some of us may be called to do this on a national stage. That's what John was called. He was up there in front of the king. He was in his grill. I don't know. What God's will for you is. I don't know what stage he's going to put you on, but I know you're on a stage somewhere. Whether it's in national, in front of the news, or whether it's at home, or just outside in a front lawn with a neighbor. You're on a stage somewhere. And you're being called to have the courage to preach repentance. But it's interesting here because his preaching resulted in a grudge of someone quite powerful who wanted to kill him. And do you notice in this story that every person who preaches repentance in a lost world is always in a very precarious position because there's these two passions there's these two tensions that we that we have to stand between on the one hand there are people who have conscience they, people have a conscience and there's something about hearing a, a call to repent or, or challenging people on in an area of their life that they know is bad or not right or wrong and, and there's, a, there's something about that that, that you know, you want to hear it, tell me it. But on the same side, there's also something in us that doesn't want to hear it. And so as people who bring that message, we're in this precarious position. We're in this love-hate position. And it's, and it's always very precarious. John was in a love-hate position between Herod and, and Herod's wife. He was always walking this fine line between telling the truth and ending up dead as a result. We can't back down. Even when we're afraid, even when it's hard, we can't back down. We got to be willing to walk that line. We got to be willing to take our, put our hands and our, our lives into God's hand and, and answer the call that God has given us. And I don't know. I don't know where that's going to go. 
I don't know what's going to happen down the road. I know that anyone who preaches repentance is always in a precarious position. Now, verse 20 says, when Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled. And it says, yeah, he liked to listen to him. So again, I want to get some feedback here for a second. What do you make of that statement? What does that mean to you? What, 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 what observation do you have when you hear those words? That Herod, he was puzzled, yet he liked to listen to John. What does that say to you? Yes, Gwenny. Yeah. Yeah, the, 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 the truth, sometimes it can be uh, confusing if you don't want to respond to it right. So, it, so then you get confused. You feel confused when you're, when you're confronted by something and you know you're not really going to respond. Yes. Great point. Maybe he saw in John who he wanted to be, a, a man who could stand on principle. Maybe there was a part of Herod that wanted to be something different, but he, he couldn't get there, and so he was just perplexed as to what to do. Yes? <laughs> yeah, here he is, grew up in a really dysfunctional environment. Here's a guy bringing truth to him. There's a sense of Maybe this is this there's something to this and he wanted to know, but he but it was just so foreign to him, it was hard. Yes, John, one more. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really hard, man. The truth sometimes hurts. And it's hard to accept. I have a friend I met recently, and he leads a church, uh, a Christian church. And it happens to be in his church that they have a, uh, you know, a, actually a, an, a, a fairly sizable number of people from the LGBT community that attend his church. The funny thing is, is he's very orthodox. He's very conservative in his, in his view of Scripture and what it teaches about um, those issues and so he was a little perplexed as to why he was having uh, uh you know a, a a number of people attend his church and so he asked if they wouldn't mind get together and have a little uh bible study time and he just wanted to understand he, no judgment just wanted to know lots of grace he was practicing grace but he wanted to understand what their motivations were what was the reason and he asked them the question why why are you attending this church i mean there are there's lots of lgbt friendly churches in the world um, there's lots of other options. Why come here? We're not, we wouldn't be called, we wouldn't be described as friendly to that. And he, his, and he told me the answer blew his mind. He said that the answer that came back was because those groups don't teach the Bible. <laughs> that puzzles me. Because I think, yeah, but 
the Bible teaches very specific things about those issues, and they're not in agreement with, with what you may feel or what you think about them. And it seems perplexing to me that they would come to a church that teaches something that's contradictory to the way they live and what they believe. And, and then I started thinking about it, guys, and, and this is, hopefully this makes a point to you. Then I started realizing, you know, the Bible teaches that we should be obedient. It teaches we shouldn't lie. It teaches we shouldn't be hypocritical. It condemns fornication. It condemns impurity. It condemns gossip. And I still come to church. Because I want to hear the truth. Why are you here? Why do you come to church? Because you want to hear the truth. You want to know what God has to say. Are we, are we always perfectly in line with it? Are we always where we need to be? Heavens, no. But we need to know the truth. At some level, everyone... Even the worst of us is drawn to some truth. We're drawn to it. And if we're ever going to reach as many people as we possibly can reach, then we may have to be okay with a few Herods showing up into our fellowship. We're here. We may have to be okay with some people with some very different opinions. I have put up with SC fans for a long time. <laughs> there are those of you that have to deal with those Cowboy fans. There are those of you that, you know, homeschool or not homeschool. I mean, we have lots of opinions about things and the way they should be and how we feel about them. But if we're ever going to be a community that preaches the truth and practices grace, maybe, maybe, and this is what my friend said to me, maybe... We need to let people belong before they believe. Yeah. What is it, how does that sound to you? How does that sound? Let people belong before they believe. Let them come and experience the grace of God and hear the truth of God. And no, they may not be ready. And no, it may take a while. But the truth at some point, if they are open, is going to make a difference in their life. The message of repentance is going to to change them. Who knows what would have happened with Herod if Herodias hadn't gotten involved? After years and years of hearing John, who knows what might have happened to Herod? Maybe he would have repented. Maybe he would have had a, a conversion. And we'd have this incredible story of this, this ruler in Palestine who became a Christian, right? we got to give people time. We got to let people belong and help them to believe. Verse 21. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried into the king with the request. I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. 
The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. The opportune time had come. Herodias had a daughter, not Herod's daughter, but a daughter from her previous husband, who was Herod's brother. And she danced for her stepfather, for, the, for Herod, at, at a banquet, and, he, and it pleased him. And, and as a result, he said, hey, whatever you want, you know, go ahead, lay it on me, I'll give you whatever you want. And so she asked her mother, and her mother asked for the head of John the Baptist. Now, when, when you see movies that depict this scene, or you read in a book and they, they, re, they depict this scene, it's always uh, lewd. There's always undertones of uh, like maybe a sexuality going on here. And that may have been the case, I don't know, but the text doesn't necessarily say that. It doesn't necessarily imply that this was some sort of seductive dance that this girl did. As a matter of fact, the word for dance in the Greek is orkomai, which just means to dance. The word please in the Greek is oresko, which just means to be agreeable. In fact, that word is used when the disciples make a decision and they go, it pleased everyone. It doesn't imply any kind of sexuality. And the word for girl is chorision, which refers to just a little girl. It's the same word that Jesus said when, when, uh, just a, a few lessons ago when he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. And he said, little girl. And so it's quite possible that she was just a preteen, 11, 12-year-old girl who just danced and made everybody laugh and everybody had a good time. Didn't necessarily have to imply anything of a sexual nature, whatever. And Herod, just proud of her or happy for her, offered her, you know, whatever she wants. The real lewdness of the story comes in when Herodias makes her request. That's the real ugliness in the story. She sends her 11, 12-year-old girl to execute, to ask for the execution of a man of God. That is sinister. That is disgusting. The little girl does. This, this greatly distresses King Herod for all the reasons we've already talked to. He was in, in a quandary. He wanted John to be alive, but he couldn't. And so he ordered the execution of John. You know, the rabbis, there's a Jewish tradition out there. I want you to hear this. They taught that a, a good woman might marry a bad man and hope to make him into a good man. But they never recommended a man, a good man, to marry a bad woman because there was no hope for him to reform her. Now, that was an old Jewish proverb. It was an old Jewish, uh, what do you want to call it, teaching. Now, personally, I think they're both horrible ideas. We should be careful who we choose to be our friends. That's why Jesus taught, be equally yoked. Find yourself in a relationship with someone who has the same convictions, the right convictions. It's why in our church we encourage and we, 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 we challenge people to date within the church. Find someone in the church who's like-minded in faith and in everything else, and that's the person that's going to be best for you. I know we get drawn to the mysterious, or we get drawn sometimes to that other person out there, and we really get enamored with them, but the truth is, don't put yourself in a position when you're around bad company. And even in the church, you can find yourselves in a, in a quandary with some people who may be leading you in the wrong road, especially when it comes to gossip, negative attitudes, faithlessness. These things are really the sins that happen in the church, criticalness, 
judgmentalness, right? And, and I am as guilty as the rest of us. Yet it's so easy to do. And I so appreciate those who call me back to a good standard. Surround yourself by people who are going to influence you in a good way. We can, and we, you know, the amazing thing is we can do that and at the same time let people belong. We can still extend grace to people, but we can still choose our friends wisely and open ourselves up to good influences. You guys know that what's happening here in between now and the end of the year is we're becoming, uh, we're merging with the Shoreline Church. And these are some great people. The more my wife and I get out there, the more we talk to people, the more we're like, this is a great group of people. And we've had some combined services, but as the year goes on, we're going to do more until the end of the year when we're just going to be one church. And the plan is to meet here on Sundays, at least for the first part, the first quarter of next year. Um, and then at some point we want to plant, just like Simi was planted, we want to plant the Shoreline Church in Oxnard. So that means that there'll be a group that will be sent back out to their area where they live, Oxnard, and we'll get a church started down there sometime next year. But that means all the other people in the Shoreline Church are going to become part of the Simi Church. Amen. And I'm going through this explanation to say that they're good people, and I recommend them as good influences in your life. Amen. I'm going to ask that as Simi Church that we open our hearts up to the brothers and sisters in the Shoreline Church. Amen. Next Sunday is a great opportunity. We're going to have church here. We're going to... As Lynette said, open up the wall. We're going to have the whole banquet room. We're going to be tight. It's going to be a dry run to see what it's like to squeeze into this facility for a few months with everyone. We're going to put the stage over there. We've got great music. We're going to shove the kids in that room. We're going to find other places around. We're going to figure out what to do. It's not going to go perfect. We're going to have lots of little glitches that we're going to have to work out. That's why we're doing a couple of dry runs. If you have any input, let me know, let Mayan know, let someone know, hey, I, I observe this, I observe that, but let's stay positive and faithful and not critical about it. Amen. But more importantly, my ask for you, what I would like you to do as See Me Church, is to think of them as, think of us as one church, let's not be, oh, them and us, Shoreline and See Me, we're one family, we're one church, and do me this favor, plan on going to lunch next Sunday with someone from, from Shoreline Church. One Sunday, just hang out with them. Be as warm and welcoming and inviting as you possibly can be when they come in. It's going to be awkward for them. Let's open our arms up. Let's embrace them. Let's love them. They're good people. And you can build good relationships with them. So plan that out. Even think this week. Who can I encourage next week? Give them a call. If you don't have anyone, when they come in, just start asking, hey, can we get lunch afterwards? Pull them in. And let's, let's really influence each other and, and become good friends to one another. Verse 27, so he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl. She gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. So John is beheaded, and his disciples come, and they, they bury him. And this is the conclusion of John's story. It was started way back when in Mark chapter 1 when we first heard about him and he was you know, uh, there with Jesus and then he was arrested and then he kind of went away for two years and now we conclude the story. But before I wrap up, I want to just do a little eulogy of John the Baptist. 
He really was the E.F. Hutton of the new world, of, 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 of the first century of Palestine. When he spoke, people listened. From his birth, people knew he would be special. The angel Gabriel announced that he would be great in the sight of the Lord. His parents were descendants of Aaron, the first high priest. They were righteous and pious. His dad served at the temple in Jerusalem. His mother Elizabeth was related to Mary, Jesus' own mom. He was raised in the wilderness of Judea. He grew to become powerful and influential. He was called by God to preach repentance. And thousands and thousands of people responded. He started a revival. He prepared the way for Jesus. He baptized Jesus, blessing his ministry. For two afterwards, he was taken off the scene by God so, so that people could go to Jesus, that John would be a distraction. He was that influential. He was that important. He was that um, incredible of a person that people wouldn't have changed their focus to Jesus. And so God literally had to take him out by having him arrested so that Jesus could... So Jesus could become more important. And John said, I must become less, he must become more. Jesus said about John that among women, no one was greater. Among, among those born of women, not one was greater than John. Imagine Jesus doing your eulogy and saying that about you. You know, what seems like a very disappointing end, two years in prison and then beheading, is really a very glorious ending in God's eyes. It's a glorious ending to a life that was lived right. I don't know how my life or your life is going to end, but I hope it's even a fraction of how John's, you know, I hope my impact is, you know, even just a, a little bit of what John's was. God never promised John a trouble-free life. And he doesn't promise you that either. But he does promise a trouble-free afterlife. And he does promise that to you and I. And right now, John is enjoying that life. And so the little boy on the porch was excited that when his grandfather croaked, he would, he would get to move to Miami well, when John croaked, he moved to heaven. And I hope that that's said about every one of us at the end of our days, that we have been moved to heaven. Let's go ahead and stand. I'm going to close out.